This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Sylvia Lintner. Professor Lintner is a member of the faculty at the University of Michigan's School of Information and director of the Center for Ethics, Society, and Computing. She's also a member of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Public Intellectual Program, which takes ivory tower academics like Sylvia and me and helps us contribute to the public and policymaking discourse on China. Today, we're going to talk about her book, Prototype Nation, China and the Contested Promise of Innovation, which just won the prestigious Joseph Levinson Prize from the Association for Asian Studies. This book, part of Princeton University's Press's Studies in Culture and Technology, examines China's maker economy, focusing on Shenzhen. Now, unlike most of the authors I've talked to on this podcast, Professor Lindner is an ethnographer, uh, not a numbers person. She studies the economy through the process of participant observation, living and working among the people she writes about and helping us to understand the world from their perspective. Um, as it turns out, she's in China right now conducting fieldwork for her next, next project. So after we take some time to discuss the book, I'm also looking forward to hearing from her about what she's working on and what it's like to do on the ground fieldwork in China during a time of very high US-China and indeed global tensions and a strict ongoing zero COVID policy. Sylvia, welcome. Thank you so much, Peter. It's such a delight to be here with you today. Yeah, so glad that we could have you on. Um, so first off, uh, why don't you give us some background about just uh, all the research that, that went into this book? Sure. Uh, the research that went into this book started by now over 10 years ago when I was still a doctoral student. And maybe a good place to start with telling that story is by looking at the book cover uh, the book cover of Prototype Nation is actually an art piece uh, by the Chinese uh, electronic and digital media artist Cao Fei. Um, at that time, in 2008 and 9, when I began the research for this book, I was really interested in these intersecting worlds of the arts, computing, and internet culture in China. And I came across Cao Fei's artwork um, as um, a kind of approach to studying digital technology that already surfaced back then, these questions of whose technology actually is this? Uh, so the series that this art piece is from is called Whose Utopia? And so Faye was actually doing uh, film production in factories in the south of China. So my own research actually didn't begin in the factories in China. It actually began in the kinds of creative uh, co-working and hacker spaces where people like Cao Fei would uh, present their work, would hang out and, and experiment with technology. And, you know, at that time when I was a PhD student, I um, 
I, I, of course, like every PhD student applied for research funding for this research um, and kind of pitched this as something, you know, that is sitting exactly at these kinds of intersection of art, art practice and sort of um, computational forms of resistance and sort of people who were really interested in challenging how the internet in China was developed at that time. And I was told um, by these major funding agencies, oh, you cannot really study artists. You know, you should really study, you cannot get funding for that. You know, you should really study creativity and innovation cultures. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So at the same time, then I began looking into um, various policy documents at that time in China that had also begun emphasizing this sort of um, ambition to build up a kind of what was called at that time creative China or move from made in China to creative China. And so I was really interested in this question, okay, how is it possible that both on a state level and on a global level, when it comes to funding agencies, um, people are so invested in this sort of notion of creativity and innovation? And what does that actually mean on the ground? Like, who are the people potentially implementing this vision that is quite, you know, sort of global and national at scale? And how might they also be pushing back? And so that led me into these various sort of experimental technology spaces variously referred to as maker, hacker spaces that would later also um, become more sort of investment driven environments shaped by Silicon Valley type funding um, programs, incubator spaces, um, and so on and so forth. So uh, the research, but the research really began with sort of an interest in these sort of intersecting worlds of, um, of electronic media art in China at that time and the role that computer science and computing played in it because my own background, you know, is in computer science, actually. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to say that you didn't have background in that, but just in terms of the research approach of this book um, is uh, is very different from the um, sort of quant econ um, approach. Um, so, yeah, so you're studying um, this. Why don't you actually then go ahead and tell us more about, like, um, for people who don't know, like, what is the maker movement um, sort of in general, like worldwide, like what's it, what's it about? Um, and then, and then tell us more about, uh, you know, how it took shape in China specifically. Sure. So, uh, the maker movement, you know, I guess we have to start by unpacking why was it even thought of as a movement and what is, what, what's, what was sort of the, um, the politics of that, right? Like how did people come to think of making as a movement and who began to promote it as such? And for that, we really have to be quite historically precise because a lot of people were kind of tinkering in the sort of hacker maker environment for a long time. You know, hacker maker spaces existed for about 20 years. Sometimes they had different names, often again associated with a kind of more electronic arts kind of uh, contest, uh, context. Um, but what happened in the years following the financial crisis, 2007 and 8, is that really across the globe, uh, these kinds of ideals around using technological tinkering and experimentation with open source tools and platform would allow also for social transformation and political transformation. Like that very ideal, that, that promise really took up in a sort of political economic environment post the financial crisis where a lot of people felt you know, economic despair, they, they didn't feel quite as good about sort of the job prospects, you know, um, people were struggling to find jobs, especially also young people in the technology industry, right? And so there was a growing sort of interest in, in um, 
turning towards technology as something that shouldn't just be reserved for elites, you know, so and technology production in particular. So technological tinkering and experimentation as something that wasn't just reserved for an engineering lab at the university or for um, a big tech corporation. And so that, that sort of um, ideal of a democratized form of technology innovation was really what people in the maker movement were advocating. And a lot of people identified with that. And that's why it sort of became a movement of sort of people thought of it as a movement um, because it uh, promised this more open and inclusive approach to technology production that had, especially following the financial crisis, uh, been um, sort of understood as somewhat um, a failed project. You know, when you think about the 1990s and people were excited about social media as, you know, think about the early social media platforms when people celebrated Twitter and Facebook as kind of carrying revolutionary potential with the financial crisis, of course, and especially the years following 2010, more and more people began to think about digital technologies as complicit with various forms of control and also um, capitalist expansion. And so the maker movement was really sort of an expression of these kinds of yearnings for using technology uh, production for political and social transformation at that time. And um, you were asking the specific sort of versions this uh, took um, on in, 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 the in the Chinese context. So, um, well, wait, maybe before we go into that, tell, tell me more even like in, in the US, um, like what, what, what's a makerspace even look like and, and who's there? And obviously it's like very diverse, but like what kinds of projects, what kinds of things are they making? Sure. So makerspaces vary quite a bit, but I think what many of them share is that they are um, open, fairly open spaces that have a very um, affordable membership structure. Some of them don't even have membership fees at all, but the idea is you pay a very small amount per month, could be something like 10 US dollars. And in exchange, you get access to machines and electronic tools. So um, a lot of makerspaces had open source 3D printers or open source um, microcontroller platforms like the Arduino board um, or um, CNC machines that would allow people to um, develop uh, both sort of digital and physical sort of artifacts. Um, and so a makerspace was then not only though providing access to these kinds of open source machines and technologies, but also access to a community of people um, where people would go and hang out and host events and talks and work together and prototype together. So maker and hackerspaces were really very social spaces. And some people, you know, in the scene at that time, in particular in 2008, 9 and 10, early on, were debating quite a bit about actually the difference between what is a hackerspace and what is a makerspace. You know, the early spaces identified very strongly with this notion of hacking which has sort of a slightly more um, political connotation to it often. You know, people associate hacking often with a somewhat illegal activity. And, and, and people then thought of the term making as a somewhat more commodified version of it. And there was much debate within the scene in the beginning already about that. So an organization that played a big role in that in both the American and international context was um, Maker Media. So Maker Media hosted not only the big maker fairs, but also published um, a magazine um, 
on the very topic of, of making and, and that magazine and the maker fairs themselves provided sort of how-to tutorials and showcases, not only for how to tinker with technology, but what does it mean to be a maker and why was that important at that time? And so that was, so these publications and the, the events that then took place all over the world, many, many of these maker fairs had like hundreds of thousands of attendees, including the ones in China, really also created this feel at that time of like exuberant excitement, you know, that people were part of something really big, of something transformative um, with technology playing a key role in that. And, and the sort of the things that people are making, it was more of a kind of individualist kind of quasi artistic endeavor rather than like a, like when you say, I mean, for instance, you say, you know, a prototype, like were people, I'm, I'm sort of in my mind confusing it a little bit with like an incubator where the goal is to like get people to, you know, create stuff that will then be, you know, marketed and make everyone a bunch of money or something. But this sounds like it's very different. So like, we're, is it more like, you know, uh, artists making one-off items and some hobbyists just kind of having fun? Like who, who was kind of there and, and, you know, what were they trying to uh, uh, do, I guess, in a more concrete way? So it varied quite a bit from makerspace to makerspace. So in some place, in some makerspaces or hackerspaces, yes, there was this very strong commitment actually to artistic expression, to this kind of whimsical sort of uh, prototyping of uh, of alternative kind of uh, um, artifacts in robotics or environmental sensing, kind of activist type projects. And other makerspaces or hackerspaces veered very quick, quickly into that scene of also thinking about but what does this mean in terms of product development or how do we sustain ourselves? Um, and some spaces were sitting right in between, you know, both taking funding from big corporations like Intel or Twitter, while still kind of attempting to retain this kind of countercultural um, or even artistic kind of ethos, right? And you really saw experimentation happening across. Um, I think what was very interesting to see actually is how quickly um, people who were active in sort of the maker movement began struggling with this sort of question of what does it mean um, that corporations and governments were likewise so excited about the maker movement. So this started around 2010 and 11 where big tech corporations began heavily invest in uh, open source hardware and the maker movement. They supported these maker fairs. The White House under President Obama hosted uh, maker fairs in the White House. Eventually, you know, the Chinese Prime Minister Li Keqiang, which is an opening vignette of the book, you know, travels to this tiny, tiny hacker space in the south of China in the city of Shenzhen and endorses making as this as this project that will, um, you know, help cultivate an entrepreneurial ethos all over China. So very quickly, actually, people in the scene began grappling and felt in some ways ambivalent, both excited and, and sometimes frustrated with this um, endorsement um, and sort of enrollment or even appropriation of some of their ideals by big corporations and the state. So in some ways, your question about, you know, was it artistic or product driven? In many ways, it was always already both from the beginning. You know, there was always this question of um, and contestation over how much should it go into one or the other direction. And and many people in the maker scene really disagreed. There was hot, this was a hotly debated topic. Some people then referred to maker media as kind of a sellout because they accepted funding by DARPA. Um, 
And, and so th this was a hotly debated topic for many, many years in the maker scene. Yeah, I can see. I mean, it sounds, it sounds in, in many respects, I mean, you probably know this history better than I do, but um, I grew up in Silicon Valley um, also, and, and my parents both worked in the industry. So I feel like there's, there's kind of a whole, you know, history of that, like going back to, you know, Apple and so forth, like these were kind of hippies with this kind of countercultural, you know, ideas who then, you know, were kind of creating stuff just because they thought it was cool. But then, of course, those among them who saw the commercial potential, you know, the, the Bill Gates and the, the Steve Jobs types then kind of took it and ran with it and, and made it something that, you know, um, you know, I think in many cases benefit us all, but definitely is a much more commercial endeavor. Um, and that is, and there's still kind of that tension with, uh, you know, with the, the Burning Man, you know, festival and with many other things around here, we're kind of, uh, which maybe is part of what Silicon Valley is about, kind of that dynamic tension between the artistic and self-expression element and the wanting to make a whole bunch of money, um, selling something really popular element. Yeah, I think what was what is really interesting actually about the maker movement is that it kind of was a moment where these kinds of processes of we might call them appropriation or commodification or economization, right, of a counterculture into something that was also a market that created a market that happened in a much shorter time scale within only a few years. You know, when you think about these sort of early countercultural experiments in Silicon Valley and their later appropriation, that was like a time span of 20, 30 years or something, you know, and, and with the maker movement, this happened almost instantaneously as it was sort of really rolling out, you know, there was already that immediate sort of um, appropriation and sort of, and also this immediate, so this immediate contestation of that, right? So, and I think this was very interesting to see how on the one hand, the maker movement was both sort of promising uh, this uh, recuperation of technological promise in the very moment as many people began critiquing Silicon Valley, right? So the years following the financial crisis um, was really a, sort of a time, the 10 years that followed, and we're still in it in some ways, right? This kind of reckoning with this earlier technological promise of the 1990s. So think Steve Jobs, of course, who you just mentioned and other people, right? Um, were in those years, you know, people were saying, wait a second, this kind of technological promise of individual and societal empowerment really only benefited a small elite. And what is now often referred to as the tech lash, you know, this sort of broader, broader critique of Silicon Valley was really something that people worked out at that time through the maker movement to say, how could we, you know, how to, how to reckon sort of with that failed promise, you know, of that sort of, technology is a site for hopeful intervention, right? So, so the maker movement was both an attempt to recuperate these promises, while at the same time it was um, already being enrolled again in, in uh, various processes of financial investment, right? And people were really grappling with sort of what does it mean that make the maker movement is kind of both? It's both the promise to intervene and it's already appropriated by, by capital. And that, that for me was very fascinating, this contradiction, Right. This come to and how to make sense of that contradiction. How can something be simultaneously a counterculture and immediately appropriated by the state and the corporation? Yeah, and that's I mean, it's it's I think especially for me surprising to see it in China. Because in the US we have a little more of this idea that, you know, the artists, you know, for the for the I don't know, the squares to, to use the old fashioned term, like to the squares, the artists are kind of like weird, but they also kind of know that they play this important part of society and a lot of, you know, creativity and and forward movement kind of comes from them. So there's a little more of a acceptance that that's 
that's a normal thing, even though it's always an uncomfortable um, interaction. Whereas, you know, with the to hear that the Chinese state is also kind of embracing like, yay, you guys are getting together and doing this countercultural thing. Like, t- tell me more about how that happened and how it played out in that context. Yeah, so the key year to um, look at uh, for this is the year of 2015. So this was several years after, you know, the first hackerspace in China opened in 2010. Some of these experiments had started around 2008 and 9. Um, so this was several years after, right? So the maker movement had been around for a while. There was much experimentation happening in various hacker maker and art spaces in China. And a lot of this kind of um, energy in China had actually concentrated in the city of Shenzhen in the south of China. So Shenzhen had become the place where a lot of these international maker events were hosted. And a lot of people from, first it was mostly America and Europe, but then also many other places in the world, many people sort of interested in hardware and electronics and Internet of Things and making began traveling to Shenzhen. Um, uh, and this really be sort of the, the the years where a lot of this was happening was sort of between 2011 and 2017. So in 2015, right in the middle of all of that, um, the Chinese Prime Minister Li Keqiang goes on an official state visit to the city of Shenzhen. And he visits not only the headquarters of Huawei and a financial investment bank, he also visits this very small hackerspace called Chaihua, which was founded by Kevin Lau and Eric Pan um, five years earlier. And this was a big deal, you know, like having a major politician like China's prime minister go to this tiny hackerspace that's like the size of my living room, um, you know, meant, meant, you know, there was something uh, meaningful happening with regards to how the state is now reacting to what had been really a very grassroots kind of um, scene and had also been understood as such, right? So the prime minister doesn't not, he didn't just visit Chai Hoi, he also actually declared a national policy based on the maker scene he had seen in and around Chai Hoi. So this policy was written around this term called Chongzhuang Kongtian, um, which translates into English as something like mass makerspaces or makerspaces for the people. And the policy was uh, basically declaring Chaihua as a model for other cities and regions in China to create environments and spaces that would allow Chinese people to become entrepreneurial. And it's really important to understand that the Chinese term for making or maker, chuang ke, could be translated into English as both either a maker or something like an innovator or entrepreneur. So the Chinese term itself already has this connotation of innovation, entrepreneurship. And this is what was very appealing to the government at the time. There was a rising unemployment amongst young people in China. There were, there were these debates around 2015 of the first significant economic slowdown in China since the opening reforms. And the maker movement seemed to promise, you know, that not only was making um, an avenue of creative expression, but it could also be a pathway to train people into becoming entrepreneurs. And this was, of course, the very story 
that the maker movement in America through Silicon Valley type incubator investment had also begun already telling at that time, right? And um, so what is really important to understand then is that um, making was celebrated in an international context at that time um, as something that was very, very positive, you know, that had these these very positive feelings associated with it of progress, of cultivating these kind of optimistic change makers, young people who would make a difference in the in the world. You know, that's really how the maker movement was positioned. And that was a global story, very much so shaped by actually a very American Eurocentric kind of narrative that that attempted to kind of retain this technological optimism that we had you know, come to know from Silicon Valley, the maker movement in some ways you could argue extended that kind of what I call in the book, this kind of sort of um, feeling of, of of happiness attached to technology that many people had actually lost at that time, because again, people were critiquing suddenly Silicon Valley for all the things that were going wrong, you know. So the maker movement created and attach these positive feelings and reattach these positive feelings to technological making. And that's why the government also found so much appeal in appropriating the maker movement for its own innovation, entrepreneurship policy changes at that time. So how well did that work? (laughs) Well, I think it worked really well in that sense that there were thousands of such spaces that opened all over the, the country um, and many of the early uh, founders um, of the makerspaces in China felt very ambivalent about that. There was this ongoing choking, you know, in the scene where people would say, you know, even a coffee house is now a makerspace because people would just use that label to get local government funding. So basically, when you have a big government policy in China, right, it it doesn't mean often that there is like money that trickles from Beijing through, but actually local governments are called upon to use their existing resources that they have to enable and implement this policy. And then local governments are competing over um, which city or which province, right, um, or which city district is doing it best. And that can help government officials to get promoted. It's a very common process in China. And so, of course, this happened also in the case of the Zhongzhuang Kongtian, the mass makerspace policy, um, where cities and regions were competing over that, right? But I think the biggest significant change, and, and this is something I write about in chapter six of the book, is um, that the policy and the sort of endorsement by local governments and the attempt to build up these kinds of maker entrepreneurial spaces all over China really um, led to an urban and regional transformation of existing neighborhoods, especially around industrial production. So let me give you a concrete example of that. So for instance, in Shenzhen itself, one of the areas where so many makers and also eventually investors from abroad went to in order to understand Chinese maker culture were the electronic markets of Huaqiang Bay. And the electronic markets are sort of, uh, you know, used to be and still are in many ways sort of where a lot of the trade and networking for electronic production is happening in the city. And these markets were sort of um, really, um, I would say, celebrated by a lot of makers abroad because they thought of these markets as a kind of city size makerspace. So imagine instead of just tinkering in a tiny hackerspace, they would say, oh, in Shenzhen, if we go to Huaqiang Bay, we can 
we can tinker at the scale of the city. So Shenzhen and Huajiangbei had this kind of promise of allowing not only to develop a prototype, but actually intervene in large-scale structures of capitalist production and, and supply chain. And again, a lot of these people were so interested in intervention, right, and developing technology that would change also things politically. And so they, they thought of Huajiangbei as kind of a place to really tinker at scale. And what was interesting following the 2015 policy, a lot of spaces like Huajiangbei themselves changed. So the, the markets um, transitioned from you know, places that were somewhat messy, um, many people even described them as dirty, you know, where family networks even brought their children and cooked food. And there was, you know, in, in, you know, with electronics in the mix, and it was kind of this labyrinth of, of both half illicit electronic production and official production. And those markets um, came to look more and more like the kinds of maker spaces that the government had began celebrate. So the maker spaces, there were maker spaces that opened in these electronic markets and sort of slowly these kinds of aesthetics of an incubator maker space bled into the markets themselves and into other areas of the city where sort of a, a slow but sort of gradual upgrade was taking place of these urban kind of technological, infrastructural and organizational spaces that, as I argue in the book, really shaped technology, culture and production broadly in China. So the Hua Jingbei markets are just one example. I could give you many others of similar kind of urban upgrades in other parts of China that were very, very significant because these different kind of, you know, these markets that suddenly look like a gigantic incubator makerspace also created a particular feel, right? They seemed more high tech. A lot of the, the people I'd spent time with, the workers in Zhenzhen, felt like they themselves actually had no longer access to these kinds of spaces because they felt like they weren't, they were not international enough or they were not innovative enough and they felt like they had to go elsewhere, right? So these kinds of upgrades um, really changed not only the urban fabric, but also the kind of social fabric of technology production in China. So kind of a gentrification or like even like, Sounds a little bit like sort of a mollification, like like get every make everything nice and clean and orderly, and but I guess did did it lose the dynamism with that, or or did they manage to maintain that? Yeah, I think you could describe it as a little bit of a gentrification, but it might be almost like um, too uh, quick to say because yeah. So I think what happened for a long time in the Huajiangbei markets, as well as elsewhere, is that these kinds of environments uh, remained side by side. And by these kinds of environments, I mean these kinds of new work environments of maker spaces, incubator spaces, and the previous environments of electronics trading and um, electronics production on a sort of large manufacturing type scale. So they coexisted. And you could actually compare this a little bit to what was happening in the 1980s in Shenzhen as well, when the special economic zone was established there, where these old kind of socialist market processes were allowed to coexist a more capitalist, um, you know, and private enterprise driven market process. And they were allowed to coexist because it created incentives for people to say, oh, why would I stay stuck with my socialist you know, market model, if I could make so much more money with this more private driven um, model, right? So so actually having these two models side by side was a very smart thing because it allowed 
um, and very strategic thing by the, by the government, right? Because it allowed the sort of transition, the slow transition, created these incentives for people to entrepreneurialize themselves. And I think you see something similar going on um, where these these um, kind of incubator maker co-working type spaces are infiltrating into existing urban and other regional networks to create these kinds of incentives and to get people to think of themselves as future entrepreneurial change makers, right? To say, oh, if, maybe if I go to that place, then I could also become that kind of entrepreneur and I could not only, you know, there might be risks involved in that, but it, it seemed like it's something that was potentially doable. You know, it's very important to understand that um, people in China often at that time were talking about, um, uh, you know, um, Chinese society being risk averse. You know, that's something I heard over and over, you know, so there was always this like, oh, people in, in China, they just want to have a stable job. You know, they don't want to take these risks. And this kind of trope, I think, um, of Chinese people being risk averse was, was I think, the the adoption of this policy by the government was really also an, an, an attempt to change that kind of attitude, right? And to get people to think of themselves as being more okay with taking risks. It's funny to think about that because there's definitely other kind of cultural stereotypes about like business in China, maybe based on earlier research in Hong Kong is sort of as Chinese being, you know, loving to gamble and loving to like be entrepreneurial and, you know, better to be the, the head of a rooster than the tail of an ox and all that kind of thing. Um, so it's funny how we, we form these kind of ideas of how a culture has always been, and then they can be completely contradictory within the space of a few years of each other. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very important point, actually, because I think a lot of people active in the maker movement at that time in China were really struggling actually with some of these cultural stereotypes, you know, so they, they were hosting these large scale maker fairs and people came from abroad. And then the, the people who came from abroad would then say, for instance, things like, Oh, this maker fair here isn't as creative as the one in the Bay area because it also has products on display, you know, and so, you know, oh, this is an example of how Chinese people aren't as creative as sort of people in America, you know, so these these kinds of stereotypes. And they, a lot of the Chinese makers at the time were really struggling hard to push back against some of this while also not be confrontational, right? Because they wanted that kind of international and transnational kind of exchange, you know, um, and, and, you know, or this notion that of, oh, that the making movement in China is sort of, more business focused, you know, or something like that. So, so yeah, these kinds of cultural stereotypes were something that was a constant, I would say, struggle and debate at that time too. So I'd, I'd say from, from most of what you've said so far, um, I think a lot of uh, people listening to this, you know, if they're coming from economics or maybe business background, they'd say, well, it sounds like, you know, it worked out pretty well. Like it, you know, induced sort of more creativity in China and maybe it was a spark from some sort for some more, you know, entrepreneurial energy. And, you know, now China is much more of a, of a you know, acknowledged tech powerhouse than it, uh, than anyone, um, you know, would have expected or, you know, contrary to what a lot of people said, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. So, you know, this is great, but I feel like your book is, is not really a, you know, a, a, an ode to the joys of, uh, of the maker movement and how it made uh, Shenzhen great. So, so tell, tell us more about uh, some of the downsides that you see or, or ways in which the movement you feel like got maybe arguably misdirected. 
Yes, and some some of this I already alluded to a little bit earlier when I said, you know, as these um, kinds of industrial production sites were kind of changed and aesthetically upgraded into these kinds of incubator maker spaces, um, certain people didn't have access to these kinds of spaces anymore, right? So, um, and this was this was this is really significant, you know. So there's there's people who were very central to building the kind of um, manufacturing industrial supply chain scene in in Shenzhen. Uh, they were um, building their own careers through these kinds of networks, um, and yet they were the people who were often both thought of by their Chinese counterparts and also by um, people abroad as um, people who wouldn't necessarily represent that kind of image of the um, Chinese innovator, you know, that people should be proud of. Um, so uh, one of the things that I really wanted to highlight um, with my notion of the, the promise of making was um, to really unpack how something that produced so much excitement and that had so much positive affect and so you know so much there was so much you know people really celebrated making as as like a positive thing you know and there were success stories that have circulated widely you know in the beginning and um, to really point to how that very promise of uh, attaching these very positive feelings of transformative change and even the sort of promise of a good life that people supposedly could achieve if they just turn themselves into these kinds of entrepreneurial change makers, how that promise itself actually allowed for various forms of exploitation to continue on. So let me explain a little bit more what this meant in practice uh, by giving you a concrete example. So I spent... Uh, uh, several months um, in 2012, so in the years of 2012 and 13, with an incubator program in the city of Shenzhen that was funded through a Silicon Valley um, venture capital firm uh, with its headquarters in Ireland. And I write about this incubator program in the chapter four, but also chapter five. And um, this incubator program. Can I just, before you before you say, yeah, I'm just curious about the the research process here. Did you just go to them and say because you actually worked for them, right? Or you weren't just kind of hanging around watching them and taking notes? Is that right? Yeah. Or, so it was. In, yeah. You, it was, yeah. It so was how in, did, do they do they know that you're a you know a, a, a social scientist who's going to be kind of judging them or you know reporting back <laughs> on them? How do they feel about that? Yeah, so they did, they, yes, so they did know that I'm an ethnographer. I reached out to them in 2012 because I had, you know, at that time I'd finished my dissertation and um, suddenly saw all my friends in the maker scene were telling me, Sylvia, for your next project, building on this work, you have to go to Shenzhen and you have to see how the maker movement is scaling to this next level. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? And so I, I looked at, I visited Shenzhen, I looked at what's happening there and um, Seed Studio, which is um, one of the most well-known open source hardware producers in China, very successful company, kind of comparable to Arduino, and actually had partnerships with Arduino, had partnered with this incubator program. And so I basically approached them and said, look, I... Um, 
they, the seed studio and the incubator program later separated, um, but that's a whole nother story. But I approached the incubator program and said, look, I've been studying the maker movement for the last four years, and I'm very curious about what it means to scale it <laughs> as the program has sort of pitched itself. And at first their response was like, yes, you should just come and hang out with us um, because we are an open environment. And I was like, oh, okay, that's great. And then I went and, but when I arrived, they were like, oh, actually, you know, we cannot really have journalists here. And so I tried to explain how ethnographic research is different from journalism. And then um, they invited me to say, okay, we, we, we invite you to stay if you become member of a startup. And that's what I did. You know, I, uh, two of my friends who I write about in the book as well were actually participating in the program as a startup. And so be, I became a member of their team um, as, an, as an on-site ethnographer, so to say. So were you doing kind of, as, as a member of their team, were you sort of doing ethnography or were you doing other kinds of work for them um, kind of to, to sort of make yourself useful and, and participate? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I mean, I write about this in one of the chapters, how um, this process of making myself useful was a really interesting lens, actually, into understanding the incubator program. Um, so, so, but just to back up for a second, so ethnographic research is uh, based on participant observation. Mm-hmm. And participant observation means we don't just observe people and take notes, we participate in what they do. So it's actually very common that you do exactly what the people you study do. So in that sense, it was actually really perfect. And the director of the program had said this to me, you know, he was like, oh, isn't isn't ethnography all about participating? Sylvia, you told us about that, right? So why don't you just do what you are studying? And I'm like, yes, that's exactly, that's right. <laughs> so I basically, my, my participating in what they did, which included pitching, you know, going to factories and going to the electronic markets, participating in sort of these competitions all so that became my reason you know that was my modality of research basically and I took a lot of notes in the process of course you know but you participate in what people do and it was really interesting you know because um for me to also think through as a you know I was a postdoctoral fellow at Fudan University at the time I was thinking about the academic job market and there was this big debate at that time in my field of, oh, can you even make a difference if you stay at the university and how useful even are you? And the future is entrepreneurship, right? That was sort of the big trope at that time. And so there was also um, a lot of changes in the academy at that time where incubator and makerspaces were set up at universities and students and faculty too, you know, I'm sure you've also seen this in a way, were also called upon to make their research more entrepreneurial and approachable to a broader public. And and so um, this sort of um, demand to make myself useful for the incubator was something that I found, and not just useful for the incubator, but in the end, you know, the incubator really trained us to turn ourselves into a form of human capital on behalf of investors, so kind of assets by pitching not just the product itself, you know, it's not that important. What you pitch is the sort of promise that your product will scale. And key for that pitch is that you as a startup can tell that story, right? And the product is almost like a side thing, right? And so how to turn oneself into that sort of asset that can tell this promising um, story around your prototype is really sort of the key task, you know? And, And so... 
in the in that in those chapters where I write about this experience of the incubator, I also end up writing a lot at the you know, about the university <laughs> and how the university has also increasingly been shaped by these kinds of demands to educate young people to make themselves useful for markets. So I, I saw a lot of adjacencies there. So but yeah, that was pretty much my it's it's a I'm glad you asked this question because I think it's actually a unique aspect about ethnographic research, you know, that we get so um deeply immersed in a particular site or in a particular project, um, which is very different from most other research methods, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, but yeah, and I was curious how, you know, I sort of had more of the, uh, say the, the, you know, way old school anthropology view of like, oh yeah, you go to the village and you, you know, collect roots and berries or participate in agriculture with the people, but like how doing the same thing in a, in a corporate context where, uh, as you mentioned, they have a little bit of hesitance about like, you know, people knowing what there's what's going on and then reporting back, you know, whether a journalist or an academic, they're still, you know, they, they want to keep their, their secrets and, and whatever, um, mm-hmm. and, not, and not be liable for anything. Um, so that was, that's great that you were able to have that experience. I think we also, you know, in, in, uh, in political science, uh, there's a lot more people kind of view this ethnography as a very loose term for like, I hung out and talked to people and that's kind of, that's, that's the, the low standard that, um, that we set for ourselves. Cause often you're not going to be able to become a politician or an activist or something like that. And maybe, maybe you wouldn't want to, but, but anyway, in this, in this corporate setting, it's, it's great. Cause you have that actual, like you said, that personal experience of, of doing it and seeing, you know, what, what they wanted you to do and, and transforming yourself a little bit. Um, sounds, uh, sounds incredible. Um, so, uh, we just have a few minutes left, so um, I, I, there's a, a ton more in the book, so everyone should go and get the book and uh, and read it. You talk about a, a lot of different um, aspects of this, and again, you know, it's it's rooted in um, you know ten years of, uh, of field work and and watching Shenzhen over long periods of time and the participant observation and everything else. Um, so really, really rich um, content. Um, but but tell me now, um, you know, you're you're back in China, um, so. Tell me about how you managed to successfully get, you know, back across the border and like out there doing fieldwork. Because I think everyone in uh, China studies uh, is is really envious of you um, that you're <laughs> you're able to do it. And then and then tell us about what you're working on now. Sure. Yeah. It's it's been it's been a, a long process. It took several months basically to to prepare for this trip. But um, I think I was very lucky that I kind of. Um, applied for a visa at the right time and that I also have a very um, supportive um, host institution here with um, NYU Shanghai. So I found out, um, I think it was in April that I, you know, got awarded this fellowship by IIE, the Institute of International Education, which is called the China US Scholars Program, which is kind of a program that was created in lieu of the China Fulbright, which was terminated under President Trump. And so that was a really unique opportunity. And so I, you know, was um, interested in, you know, while I was going through that fellowship to also understand what it means like to be in an academic context in, in China today, especially through the sort of American institution like NYU Shanghai. And I had, you know, friends and co- collaborators there too. Um, uh, so I basically reached out and, um, we were to NYU to see what their situation was like to bring in foreign visitors. And at that time, which was the spring, you know, um, last year, there was this sort of momentary gap or opening, I think, in the restrictions where it was actually 
possible to get these invitation letters that you have to acquire called the PU letter to obtain a visa. And so we just made that window, you know, I got the letter and then it took like several months, you know, between, you know, applying for the letter, getting the letter, applying for the visa. I had to go uh, to a special COVID lab in Detroit um, to go through like a special test routine. Um, And yeah, that, you know, made it through the quarantine, two weeks in a hotel and one week of self-monitoring. Um, it, I have to say, you know, it, it's been such a fascinating journey because I've really uh, come to experience sort of the life worlds of uh, COVID in America and China is drastically different. It feels like you live in two very different societies now. And that is in and of itself an interesting research topic, of course. Um, but my main project here is um, sort of taking me from um, these um, sort of more high-tech kind of industrial sites of production into very different kind of spaces these days in China. So I'm looking at, um, it's it's a fairly, I think it might take me another 10 years basically, but uh, the big project is sort of to look at how data-driven decision-making, so think about machine learning, data science, and AI, how these kinds of methods and techniques are being how they're being applied to change agricultural and food production in China today. So that's sort of a big uh, sort of umbrella project. So still very high tech. You know, I spend time in very high tech farms at the outskirts of Shanghai, where these kinds of data driven experiments are being sort of implemented. But then I also look at um, at the same time what is happening in sites of um, rural China, where historically farm and agricultural production took place. And um, so I, this is sort of similar to my earlier research where I'm always interested in what is happening on the state governance level and what is happening sort of on the ground. Um, so I've been to a lot of uh, remote areas in China over the last month to study experiments with um, rural village life. There's a, a sort of a generation of young people, many of them educated abroad, who choose to not live in Shanghai or Beijing or New York where they could live because many of them speak superb English, but they go inwards. They go towards the towards China's rural um, uh, in order to, um, you know, rethink what it means to be Chinese in this current moment. Uh, question actually in some ways this kind of, in some ways they're challenging this kind of high-tech, high-pressure environment of the big, of the big cities in China as well. And, and this research really began because some of my, well, my interest in this began because some of the people who had been working in the maker scene, they had actually turned towards agriculture and village life um, several years ago. So people who develop robotics or sensor technologies for agriculture or people who say, you know, I really want to experiment not just with technology, with technology, but with what life itself is. And so I'm basically looking right now these two intersecting worlds, these very, you know, high-tech, state-driven um, policy changes that are impacting large-scale agricultural production. And this is really around, you probably have seen the new China number one document, the Yihao Wentian, which is this big, important policy document that comes out every year and that emphasizes, again, very centrally this notion of rural revitalization. So in Chinese, this is Xiang uh, Zhenxing. Um, so that's it's a very important policy now that is really um, shifting um, how the government 
um, thinks about the countryside and some of what I've seen so far that these young people going to the countryside is already being enrolled in that official state discourse. So again, I'm looking at the relationships between these shifts in governance around the sort of inwards turn that China is often also described through right now and what is actually happening on the ground, who might be implementing these things in practice, right? And But also how people might be pushing back against some of this more high-tech data-driven approach to agriculture. Wow. And so um, so given the, the tensions between the U.S. and China, do you feel like the, I mean, aside from even like, you know, COVID precautions, which I guess, you know, are, are much, once you're in, are much less, much looser in China than, than here, but um, like, are, yeah, how, how is it talking to people? Are, are people, do you find people equally willing to talk as they were, you know, 10 years ago in Shenzhen or um, are people more uh, more cautious or, I mean, you're talking about obviously, you know, sort of more economic and cultural issues and not not something quite as politically sensitive, but, but still coming in as a, as a foreign and foreign looking person um, that can create sensitivities. Yeah, it's, um, the things have definitely shifted and in some ways, you know, it's good and in some ways not so good. Um, uh, you know, what I think I've seen shift is um, that there is a little bit less of this, um, you know, the turn towards the white foreigner as an inherent site of expertise or authority. And I think that's good. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's really good, actually. Right. Um, and I personally have not experienced anything that people don't want to talk to me you know there's there's especially a lot of curiosity right now that i'm here you know because so few people Mm -hmm. can be here so there's both excitement around that and and curiosity i think the one maybe anecdote that i could share that that was actually kind of heartbreaking for me was i was in a very um rural part of Jiangxi province um for field work and i got up really early in the morning for a morning run and i ran through this sort of village and i happened to come upon a funeral and at first I didn't want to disturb and then the villagers invited me in and said no no it's a good funeral because it's an 80 year old man who passed away and he has a long lineage of um, family you know joining him mm-hmm. and then one of the first things one of the villagers said to me was like oh but why are you here and I'm like oh you know I'm here because I'm so interested in you know what's going on in China's countryside and he was like but I thought foreigners don't like China anymore um, and I was like, oh, why do, you, why do you think that? And he was like, well, that's what America is saying and they don't like us. And the Chinese media is saying that and the Western media is saying that. And so that for me was very, that was very heartbreaking, you know, this kind of sense of, I mean, you can see then how these big geopolitical tensions trickle all the way through this very remote site, you know, where, the, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, perhaps even racist kind of notions about, you know, COVID and, and you know, the, the early rhetoric around that is it has, sha- has, has really shaped these relationships and how people think about one another, right? So I think it's even more important, actually, that we are now, that, that, that I am, that I can be here, you know, to also help hopefully in a small way, you know, continue to facilitate dialogue and, and, and dispel on both sides, of course, right, uh, certain image certain images people might have about the other society as it's become so hard to actually travel 
played. Um, yeah, it's definitely, um, you know, been really sad for all of us and, you know, kind of the, the worst possible time to have like heightening tensions. And then also those kind of just ordinary interactions between, you know, academics and students and business people, um, you know, going back and forth across the Pacific that normally, you know, facilitate, um, just mutual understanding and, you know, make it harder to have negative stereotypes of each other, um, to see all that kind of shut down has definitely not, uh, not been positive for, for, I think for either country. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, uh, I think it's, you know, I'm writing a, as, as an, as an ethnographer, I write a, a, a diary, um, almost every day when, you know, especially when I do field work, but I've also been writing a lot about this current moment and what it means, what it, what it feels like it means to be here to witness how an american institution like nyu shanghai that i'm affiliated with right as i mentioned how they are positioning themselves in all of this is fascinating um but also like yeah witnessing this moment from within china right now is is something um that is yeah i really value you know because i've seen i i've come to appreciate the COVID management here tremendously you know it's uh shanghai in particular, has has a really really good COVID management, and um, there's a lot more to say about that, you know. But um, I, I I very little of that is reported in a Western context, you know. It's it's almost like anything about China has to be negative these days, right? That's that's almost how how I feel now, you know. And I think it's you know, and you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, of course uh, you've you've seen in my book and very you know, attuned to also being critical about various processes of forms of power and control and exploitation. But at the same time, I'm also really committed to challenging these very simplistic notions about what China or Chinese governance is or isn't, right? I think that's really harmful, actually. So yes, I'm hoping, you know, by being here, I can continue to, you know, facilitate, you know, mutual understanding rather than more hostility, even if it's just in a small way. <laughs> Right. We all do. Yeah. We all play our small parts. Um, yeah. Well, why don't we uh, end on that note? You know, I think we all really appreciate that you're, you're out there uh, doing the work and, and learning things and uh, definitely looking forward to uh, seeing what you uh, produce from this trip. Uh, so thanks a lot for, for being on the show. Thank you so much, Peter. This was, this was really great. Thank you.